Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well, today Helen and I are joined on the uh, podcast by Nicole Bremner from East 8 Developments. And it's fair to say that Nicole gave a very open, frank and at times pessimistic view of what it's like being a property developer. Or maybe realistic. (laughs) So many warts and all insights were shared during the conversation with some very helpful tips and advice along the way too. We also discussed some particular challenges and how she is combating those at the moment. So today's episode is perhaps a a bittersweet examination of what it's like to be a property developer in the current climate. So let's have a listen to that right now. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Well, here we go again. We have another fantastic guest on the Property Voice podcast, joining Helen and myself today. And um, let's let's introduce you right away, Nicole Brimner. Hello, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a it's a pleasure. It's great to, it's great to have you join us on the show today. In fact, um, I've been looking forward to talking to you, and um, and I'm sure Helen will be as well. But what we normally do at this point in the conversation, Nicole, if this is okay with you is just to get a bit of context uh, about who you are, where you've come from, your, your backstory, if you like. Obviously, this is a women in property um, series that we're going through right now. So just to position yourself a little bit, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So my story started, I guess, when I, I left uh, Australia back in 2000 and moved here to the UK and really tried to I tried to work over here in what I was trained in, and that is to, I was a financial planner. And I, I was actually the youngest ever qualified certified financial planner in Australia at age 21. But when I got here, I realized that my qualification was completely useless and I had to start all over again. That was really difficult. But I, I persevered and I started and I, I worked my way up to getting a fantastic job at Capital, which at the time was the largest fund manager. And I enjoyed that. But then I uh, decided to go and have a taste of entrepreneurialism and start my own business, which was fun for a couple of years. It was in fashion, it was online fashion. And then we moved to the US and it was very difficult to have a British-based company while working in New York. And also I then ended up having my first child over there. And then I got a job at Goldman Sachs, which again was a dream job, but I started on the day that the markets collapsed. That whole crisis on the 15th of September 2008. And also found out I was pregnant with my second baby. So we moved back to the UK and I just really struggled to go back to work with two children at that point. And actually I knew I couldn't go back into banking. So it was about looking for something else I could do that allowed me to utilize these financial skills and 
the creativity that I really enjoyed as well. So that's when I uh, decided, to, well, it was my partner actually, who suggested that I do property because we'd renovated a flat and that flat had earned more than I had over the last 10 years. And it uh, had also led me into renovating our own home, which was a derelict large vicarage in Hackney. And I'd done that and thoroughly enjoyed it, but not realised that people like me could be property developers. And so I thought, okay, well, I can do this. I'm still talking with my builders. We've got a great relationship. Why don't I keep doing this? And then I had my third baby as well. I had three babies in three years and three months. And so it was very much about moving into, into property then quite slowly. So that's really how I started. And then, that yeah, that's really my background. I can go into a bit more detail about what I'm doing now, but that's how I got started into property. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> wow. I don't know what to say to some of that. That sounds like a roller coaster. Um, three, would you say three babies in three years and three months and starting to work uh, in the financial sector in New York on the day that was it the first day of the market? Uh, well, it crashed essentially. So, um, yeah, wow, what an amazing uh, start. A bit of a baptism of fire there. But um, I think really, uh, and I know Helen, Helen's very interested in this because we had the conversation before the series began. We did actually wonder about, uh, you know, one of the topics with women in property um, might centre about, you know, women uh, work, work life balance or working styles, if you like, especially if you have a family. And um, was that a factor, perhaps, in, in deciding to go into property yourself? Yeah, definitely. I, I really disagree with the whole fact that you can have it all. I really believe that as women, you can't have it all all the time. You really do have to choose. You can either have it all at home with the family or you can have it all at work with your career. But I feel that it's very challenging, if not impossible, to have it all in both ways. I think there's always compromises. But yeah, it was, it was that point of time in my life that I found that I wanted to be if not a full-time mother as close to a full-time mother as I could and or and never have to feel guilty for working the hours that I wanted to and for going and attending sports days and swimming galas and all those different things that often it's very difficult to do if you are an employee and I just I really felt that that was that was a, a very important factor for me in in going out on my own and yeah, that's again, now that my children are a bit older, they're 11, nearly 10 and eight. Uh, I do have that. I'm just really lucky that I can work while they're at school and just be really flexible and, and be the mum that I want and shape my career in the way that I want to. That's really interesting, Nicole. Um, and, and that's something that certainly um, I've found as well. That was my desire for setting up my own business was it was it came after I had my first child and I and I really wanted to just to have that that flexibility so maybe you could kind of talk us through um an, an average day for you yeah that's what's really great about what I do is that I never ever have a day that's the same and interestingly I was listening to <laughs> Another podcast, a Tim Ferriss podcast with uh, Neil Garman, I think, or a top author. And he was saying that to be a successful author, he believes that your days should try and replicate each other as much as possible. So you're in this routine. I said, yeah, because my days, every single day is different. So yesterday I was filming a pilot for a video 
series that with Savills at one of the developments they're selling in Hackney. So here I was uh, getting kids off to the school. Sorry, we go walking with my dog at six in the morning, then getting kids off to school, trying to get some work done, trying to get some a workout in, doing my filming makeup and then heading off to site for this filming, coming back, attempting to eat lunch at three o'clock and then partying the house because it was a mess and then <laughs> uh, working on an, a, an article that I'm still working on for Modern Woman. And then today I'm sitting in my tracksuit at home, <laughs> properly no makeup and working on this article that's still not ready, doing a podcast, and then tonight I'm speaking at a property meeting in Kensington. So no day is ever the same. I could not give you a typical day because really there is none. And I love that. I really embrace that. Yeah, again, for, for me, I'm someone um, for whom variety definitely is the spice. Um, it sounds like you're the same. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, Nicole, is so you're a property developer um, and development, I think, is often seen as one of the riskier strategies within property. Uh, so do you want to tell us a bit more about um, what well, you've told us, how you kind of came to um, choose property as a, as a strategy, but tell us a bit more about that now. Yeah, so sure. it's definitely one of the more risky strategies. And if you look at the number of small house builders that exist now that existed uh, 10 years ago, it's it's really quite um, disheartening because not many of them succeed. And it, it is really, really tough. And I think the thing that brings most people down is cash flow. And we there are always cycles in property and you're always going to go up and down. And I am naive. I was naive like many other property developers. I started in 2010-11, uh, no, it was, yeah, about 2011, and everything I touched turned to gold. And all my did the same. They all started at the same time, saw all the money being made, and decided they are going to be property developers. And then, of course, what happened? We had Section 24, we had our stamp duty changes, and then we had this horrible B word that's still... <laughs> and it's really knocked the wind out of the sails. It, we are in such a difficult uh, period of time right now, but especially as property developers because the whole bottom's fallen out of the market. So what I did about two years ago uh, is I started looking at what I was doing and realizing that I felt uncomfortable with the, the speed at which we were purchasing our properties and I wanted to slow down a bit because I just, um, I felt, I knew what my cash flows were and what I could keep up and I felt that I needed to also diversify and then I met uh, my partner who is uh, a, a wealth manager late last year oh, sorry early last year and he looked at my portfolio and just said my goodness you are so heavily weighted property how do you sleep at night <laughs> and it was one of my earlier thoughts I'm a, I'm a financial planner by training I should know these things and I just thought I really have to get some diversification within my portfolio. So now I sort of consider myself as more of an investor rather than a property developer. So, And property just happens to be one of the assets that I invest into. So a couple of years ago, I invested into Bamboo Auctions, which is an online property auction company, which white labels for a lot of the top agents. And it's one company that's going incredibly well in this market because it's a hedge. When things are going bad, people put their properties up for auction. 
And so it's going well. If I'm trying to think of properties that do, sorry, that companies that go well in this sort of market, and that is one uh, that is going well. Uh, then also I set up a women's activewear brand called Eda. I've invested just recently in a music merchandise company because, uh, again, as music evolved, people are, uh, or bands are making their money off merchandise because they're not making it off record sales anymore. And in the same vein, we've also started a recording label and music publishing company because, again, everything, all the money in that area is coming from streaming. So, um, and there's a number of other things that I've invested in, uh, which I can't think of at the top of my head. And I'm also looking at um, uh, almost becoming an employee again, working in as, as an independent director for a, a finance company. And again, all of these are just an evolution of my property career and almost safeguarding myself against this downturn because no, none of us really know how long it's going to last. And I want to make sure that I'm uh, fiscally savvy and protected because I've worked really hard for my money and I, I intend to keep it. <laughs> Perhaps if I can uh, also step in there. Uh, I think that's really interesting, to be honest, that uh, I've been through this sort of cycle myself. And uh, as you grow, and if you grow in one particular business area, whichever that is, you do tend to be heavily weighted. You know, I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg, you know, for example, would have uh, had most of his net worth, you know, in in Facebook stock, you know, and and then and then he probably, I'm pretty sure he is, you know, diversifying out of that to to safeguard and protect. So, you know, I, I'm not comparing myself to Mark Zuckerberg, but um, you know, when I started property, I was also very heavily weighted in property, and I was going through, I was through going through a heavy growth phase. Um, sounded like you were. Um, but it sounds like at this moment in time, you've kind of taken stock and maybe you're looking more broadly rather than, you know, deeper. Would, would it be fair to say it's followed that sort of pattern, Nicole? Oh, absolutely. I think what you've experienced and, and what I'm also experiencing is the same. And it's just also property development's really risky, as Helen pointed out before. And I don't feel that I've got the tolerance for that level of risk anymore. I definitely did over the last five, six years as I was building up my portfolio. But having gone through some tough times, not last summer, but the summer before, that was a really tough summer for us. And we've come through and we're now fine because things are, are going well, thankfully. But it was really, really tough back then. And then personally, I had a tough summer last, uh, sorry, a tough year last year. And so I kind of wanted, I felt that I had 160 odd investors within my property portfolio and I decided that I wanted to be the client rather than having clients because it's just really stressful doing it that way. And so that's also another uh, reason why I've, I've changed tact slightly or a lot really and uh, yeah, wanted to do things a bit differently. Wow, um, I actually didn't know about this the switcheroo there. So <laughs> sorry if that's if I've been a little bit behind on some of the news, but maybe winding winding back a little bit because obviously this is a women in property series. I mean, maybe the, the what you're suggesting is don't do it. I don't know, but um, I know that when you started, you 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 sort of cashed in your chips, as it were, from your your own um, property uh, personal investments that you'd done at that time to start investing. But equally, you. As you quite rightly alluded to there, you've, you had a number of other investors, and I think the whole co-investment model or joint venture model was a way in which you, you certainly sought funds and, and cash flow protection. Would that be fair to say in the earlier days? 
Yeah, absolutely. We definitely were able to catch that property right at the very beginning of my of my property journey and sold an unencumbered property right in central London, which then enabled me to have over a million pounds in cash. And I know not everyone speaks like that. And sometimes people say, well, it's all right for you, you started with a million pounds in cash. But the same principles apply for growth, whether you're starting with 10,000 or 100,000. For me, I definitely went out on my own for the first couple of projects. And then I was introduced to my JV partner, who I'm still working with uh, years later, and realized that I could grow my portfolio much quicker by working with him. And then finally, when I started using crowdfunding about three years ago now, we were able to then really grow the portfolio. And uh, at one point, we were working on well over 150,000, oh, sorry, 150 million pounds worth of property in GDP terms. And so oh. not have been able to do that if it weren't for our investors. And we had 6.4 million in uh, crowdfunding from investors plus another couple of million from larger investors as well. So yeah, that really enabled us to to, to grow what I was doing and accelerate my, my property journey. But just to pick up on a point that you mentioned earlier about just being a woman in property, I'm still really active in property. And yes, I'm growing the other areas, but I've got 11 properties in construction right now. I think the GDP of those is uh, probably around 80 million, 50 to 80 million, depending on what valuations you take. Uh, units across London, 11 different sites. So yeah, I'm very much still in property. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, otherwise it might be a sort of slightly different tack that we follow. But I think it is actually important to talk about the whole diversification piece anyway. Um, but if you start in with 10,000, I don't know if you can literally split it into 10 buckets of 1,000 and invest in lots of different asset classes. I think sometimes you have to sort of concentrate before you can diversify. So, uh, And I think the other thing, probably, uh, I would like to get your take on this, to be honest, Nicole, but clearly, as you alluded to, uh, the markets go through cycles. London itself, I think you, you kind of invest a lot in London. Um, has taken a bit of a, uh, let's say it's flattened out, if not gone a little bit under water in the last couple of years for, for some of the pricing in some elements. Um, yes, the B word has played a massive role in that, but um, it does go through cycles and there are other ways to diversify within property as well as outside of property, I imagine. What, what would you say about that? Yeah, there's definitely ways of diversifying within property and We've seen lots of various trends uh, have surfaced over the last few years. And then we went in accommodation and serviced accommodation is probably the next one that's still ongoing and I'm sure there are others. And all of these things are a way of diversifying and I think by having uh, your finger in a number of these different strategies it helps to diversify within property. Uh, another one that I think is quite interesting is obviously the crowdfunding, investing in other people's projects. I'm quite keen to do that. Uh, lending, the, the actual uh, rate of default of mezzanine lending, for example, is really quite low given what it is. It really, it's, it's surprising to me. I haven't got the statistic to hand, but the default rate's close to zero for mez, and yet these people are, or developers are paying up to 24% per annum on MES lending. 
And uh, yeah, so that's another really good way of people getting uh, exposure to property and diversifying. I'm actually, this is what my article for Modern Woman about is about at the moment, is how to diversify within property and alternative ways of property. Also the, um, the if ISAs, you can invest into property by your ISA, and uh, that's the innovative finance ISAs, and have 7% return within your ISA with a tax advantage environment. All these things are great ways of diversifying and still having exposure to property. Indeed, I totally agree. I just wanted to come back, actually, if you don't mind, on the whole crowdfunding piece, because as a as a developer in particular, you, the obviously the the purchase price of property or land is 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 a much smaller percentage of the gross development cost with, say, a refurbishment. Uh, as you'll clearly be aware, but um, so developers often when they're, they're starting out, they perhaps work up the sort of property food chain, so to speak, start with maybe a development, maybe move into like extending, which includes a bit more spend on the works and then move into conversions and, and developments where the, the sort of funding that's required is increasingly, you know, escalated. And the level of security that you have immediately is often diminished, i.e. the land or property value that you're purchasing. So I, I just, if you wouldn't mind sort of talking a little bit about how crowdfunding and mezzanine finances in particular has become, you know, a, an essential tool for a property developer. That would be really useful, I think, for some of our audience to hear. Yeah, I think that they are they are essential tools. I think that they don't come without risk. And so I'll talk about mezzanine financing first. I'm not a fan, I'll be honest. I feel that if you can't raise all the equity that you need to, then you're living dangerously. But again, if someone has got in the tens of thousands, it could be the only way that they can get started. So with Cogress, they will put up 90% of the equity and you're only required to put up uh, 10%, I believe. And so, again, that's a really good way of you using someone else's money in order to leverage what you do. And there's, there's a sort of a cogress model, which is where they've got their own internal crowd, where they crowdfund for you on your behalf. And it's very regulated. It's very monitored by their monitoring surveyors. They, uh, their fees are therefore higher and their, their split of fees are higher. But it's an excellent way for people to get started uh, from a standing start. Now, with, there's another model, which is, say, the simple crowdfunding model, where it's really good for people who have done a few projects before and have built up a reputation and are then able to build a crowd from simple crowdfunding. Simple also bring a crowd to you, but mostly you have to bring up... Um, raise money through your crowd in a regulated way through them. And again, these two ways offer you a very uh, efficient way of raising money. You can give up equity in your in your projects rather than debt. With Simple Crowdfunding, you can also raise debt through their peer-to-peer -peer platform, and I believe Cogress does that as well. But yeah, there are two different ways, and that's a really great way, I think. I will say that with the Simple model, uh, it's you do have to deal with the investor relations yourself and that can be quite arduous but you've got if you're very systemized and organized then you can do that quite easily or you and simple crowdfunding help you with that but that's one of i think the downsides to it also when things go wrong it's it's very easy for the crowd to turn on you and <laughs> <laughs> hasn't gone to plan we just cannot sell it it's in it's in south kensington five million pound flat it, Stunningly beautiful, 
but our investors are not pleased because we've just failed to sell it. So we're in the process now of slowly buying back our investors' shares uh, without any loss to them. And uh, just so that we can, it's for goodwill really, so we can uh, just buy back their shares and uh, move on with that development and hopefully sell it in the end. Uh, yeah, so that's really two tools, mezzanine and crowdfunding, that are available to people who do want to get started and don't quite have the equity that they need. That's really interesting, Nicole, and um, it's a, a very uh, good overview. And also, you know, you've been very honest there <laughs> about um, about crowdfunding. I'm really interested to know more about your approach to development. So, what's your target market, and and um, and your your specific approach to meeting their needs? Sure. So, we have very. Are you talking from an investor perspective or from a buyer perspective? End users. I guess. Um, from um, a, a buyer's perspective. Oh, yeah, okay. I guess. I, I'd want to hear more about, you know, do you target, um, well, for our, our listeners' benefit, do you target the high end of the market or, um, you know, and, and how do you go about meeting their needs or that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. So we really vary that depending on the development. So mm. right now we've got a 47-unit scheme out in Newton where the price points are 170 to 210,000 per unit. Obviously, they're going to have a very different feel inside and look to the property in South Kensington, which is £5 million. And then again, the properties in Hackney, which are, say, 550000 up to £1.2 million, will have a different feel again. But one thing that we try and do in every single property that we do, no matter what the price point, is make it stand out from everything else that's out there. I think it will do because it's very different selling a Barclay home where you've got that reputation, that name behind you uh, versus a smaller boutique developer which buys a turtle. You have to make sure that your development stands out and people can then trust that you're delivering something that is uh, of great design and or quality to what they can buy from a larger scheme. And often our, our developments are only small. The 47 one is, 47 minutes is, is large. Uh, we've got Schemes in Hackney, one's 15 units, one's eight, nine, seven, four, actually, we just got planning for another one. So that's sort of the general size of, of the, the schemes that we do. It is very bitty. And they, they are beautiful. We tried our architect, she does the interiors as well, and we the Hindu, and we give her completely blank canvas every time we do a development. And I'm always fascinated to see what she comes up with with every single so uh, it, it's probably a, a good point to ask you about some of the the highs and lows that you've encountered and also any barriers and obstacles that you've come across yeah uh highs definitely selling or finishing first finishing any property is always a high uh, although nothing beats the adrenaline of buying and actually uh, being told by the agent, yes, the property's yours, they've accepted your offer. That's that's a high and that's very hard to replicate. I think a close second to that is selling it when it's when it's actually exchanged. It's such a relief, as you all know. Uh, and then uh, yeah, the, uh, 
be finishing and walking through a beautifully staged flat uh, always gives you such a, a sense of pride. That They're definitely the highs. I think the lows would all come down to cash flow and uh, just valuations are always challenging. And I think I've learned now that as property developers, we're always glass half full. And we do this base case, mid case, best case. We always believe that it's going to be the best case. We are so naive time and time again. We don't think that we'll even get a look in on the base case. And then often what actually happens is the base case comes your best case and everything should just knock down by percentages. What's really interesting is uh, Cogress. I was talking to Tal Orley there recently and they've funded dozens and dozens of developments, over a billion pounds worth. And he said not a single property has ever come in on time and on budget. And that's telling, isn't it? One billion pounds yeah. worth and not a single one on time or on budget. And so why is it that developers still believe that they can do it? I just, oh, it fascinates me. So I think that what I always try and do now and what I will do going forward is always add in an even extra contingency on time and budget on top of my contingency. So yeah, the lows, to answer your question, uh, all around uh, financing. We had a really tricky situation where a lender was going to pull finance on us about a year and a half ago. And that was incredibly stressful because we have to forward fund about three months worth of construction across 11 different sites. So it's very cash flow intensive. And you plan out your cash and you plan out your investments. And so for a, a lender to say we're pulling finance on a one point eight million pound project, all of a sudden you've got to come up with, uh, let's say, 50, 60% of that. And that's a real challenge. In the end, we're able to show them that we weren't in breach. Uh, we'd done, we'd fulfilled all our requirements and they backed down and agreed to continue on. But my goodness, that's stressful. And it's just around valuations. Again, we bought another property for $4 million and the valuation came in at 1.8. And it's just, and of course, then the finance company just went. There's no way we can lend on that. Luckily, another finance company stepped in and just said, "Yeah, look, we can take a pragmatic approach on this, and we'll agree to to lend you uh, the equity required." But things like that are a big blow. I just wanted to step in. I mean, if it's okay, Hannah, sorry to follow up because you know I think. I'm actually really grateful, Helen, uh, sorry, Nicole, <laughs> that you're sharing the reality here um, of, of development. And, you know, it sounds like you've been through some knocks and bruises, by the way. But these, uh, there is a bit of a climate at the moment with down valuations and a bit of a pessimistic view for, from lenders. I think if you look at the, the RICS um, surveyors sort of sentiment survey, it's pretty negative at the moment. And, um, and equally, lots of developers do have um, rose-tinted spectacles, I'd say, even more so than half full, uh, glass half full. So, um, yes, you know, I always talk about having adequate contingency and a best case, mid case, uh, worst case um, scenario. But you better be able to live with the worst case um, is, is what I say. And, and, and I've seen a couple of projects being pitched to um, investors where just a 5% drop in GDV would take it underwater. 
And mm -hmm. that for me is not sustainable. It, it just isn't, especially if you're looking at an 18 month, two year bill period. An awful lot can happen in that. So um, I'm actually grateful that you are sharing, if you like, the warts and all here, um, you know, as part of your, your learning. Um, and is there any advice that comes out of that towards, uh, you know, people who might want to get involved in development that's uh, born out of your own experience? <laughs> yeah, I think it's accepted that it's worst case could be your case very, very much so. And also, in cases, so if developers really feel that cash burning a hole in their pocket and they just want to invest and invest and invest because it um, it's there's that potential return that's shining at them in the future. But I would say hold back. I honestly we we've bitten off more than we can chew because what we did is we we bought this beautiful pipeline of properties since 2015 and they're all, sorry 2013 actually and they're all supposed to form this beautiful orderly queue and instead what happened is one site we've got planning it took three years on another site just getting the finance in place took uh, two years and one year with one particular lender before we gave up and went to another one who acted very quickly in the end but it took, these things took years and if, if you did not have the cash reserves available, this is where you lose it all. And so I think my, my advice to people is just expect the unexpected, but make sure you've got the cash available for the unexpected because really you, you can't, you don't want to sink. Sinking's not an option to me. And I'm really happy to give the warts and all because I think that too many people uh, paint such a bright picture of property development. But when you look at the returns on property uh, over a long period of time, the returns on property are pretty similar to equities, except it's a much more uh, or a much less tax favorable investment. You think about the tax that's on property. There's, uh, there's your stamp duty. There's your very uh, capital gains tax. There's and then there's the income tax you have to pay to before you've got the money to invest. There's the corporations tax, and then there's inheritance tax. So again, people don't like to think about because it happens after you've passed. So property is very heavily taxed. It's actually quite an inefficient uh, asset class, and yet we are so drawn to it. Aren't we? <laughs> it's just so. Special. But I think if you've got all of these things in mind and realise that you over time can do a sort of low double digit returns with property and not expect too much more than that, I think you'll be fine. Thanks so much uh, for sharing that, Nicole. It's great to have your uh, such an, an honest evaluation from you. Uh, and that leads us on quite nicely to talking about your principles and, and your values. Um, you know, what uh, what would you never change about how you do things? And is there anything that you, you might do differently in, in future? Uh, one thing I will never do is allow my investors to lose money. Uh, I would rather lose money than have my investors lose money. So I will always ensure that uh, my investors get back every single penny they put in uh, before I would ever take any money. And I think that's where a lot of people fall down is that they've taken money from investors and they've allowed their investors to take the fall on their behalf. And I, I find that disgraceful. If you're going out there to pitch to investors, you'd better be prepared to cover them if the worst goes on. But the same thing in return is that 
if things don't go to plan, investors can't expect a 10, 20, 30% return. They have to be realistic that they could lose uh, their return and perhaps with other projects lose their initial money. So I think that's one of my that's one of my principles. And the other thing is just always to treat people the way you wish to be treated because if you treat agents badly or uh, anyone else badly, it's actually a very small market and word gets around and your brand and the reputation that you build up really is yours for the ruining and you should be fiercely protective of that brand and as someone who's spent a lot of time building up my public profile across the various social media platforms, uh, I, I'm fiercely protective of that, of my reputation and uh, yes, yeah, so I won't let that go lightly. <laughs> That's you know actually very admirable to be honest, Nicole, to hear that you won't let an investor lose money. Uh, you know, I share similar sentiments to be honest, and um, but of course that puts you in a very um, challenging position at times. Perhaps you're underwriting quite a lot yourself, but it's also very admirable and very noble. Um, I think the I hope I hope you get the the respect that that deserves, by the way, in return. So um, because obviously that is a big commitment that you're making there. The the I think. Perhaps switching a little bit, and in fact, what you said earlier about the Kensington apartment bore that out, didn't it? You said that you were raising funds to be able to buy your investors out so that they didn't lose money. So um, I think it's good, but as you also say in the crowd, perhaps people can get a little bit, you know, you know, it's like these pitchforks, isn't it, at dawn, you know, chasing the the troll out of the village, you know, and and, and maybe a little bit undeservedly so. Anyway, I'm digressing a little bit because actually what I really want to do is take you into maybe a glimpse into the future. Um, where do you think the property market is going? And perhaps is your own activity at the moment a, a bit of an insight into that view? I'd be keen to hear that. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think I'm so busy right now just working in the moment that I really haven't had much time to, to look into the future. I think what is clear is the government The government has spoken and uh, made their, themselves clear that they don't want smaller developers. They really do want to focus on the, the larger house builders. They've done that with the tax changes with the Section 24. So they really do want to focus, sorry, not on the house builders, but on the uh, larger uh, property uh, owners and accommodation providers. So I think that the whole investment model where you would buy up uh, dozens of homes and, and let those as a private landlord, that's completely broken. I think that the future, a lot more people are going to be looking at various models such as uh, crowdfunding, peer-to-peer, -peer, because it's just, it has become more challenging, especially in the nearer term, to develop yourself. I think we're going to see the end of the really small boutique developers and perhaps the the larger house builders step in and fill that gap, which is a little bit little bit disappointing because often the larger house builders don't have the ability to be so flexible on design and I tracks from the cityscape. But I'm determined to uh, to paint something positive here because I have some. <laughs> I still believe that poverty and especially for women is a, a, a fantastic industry to go into. And I just, for me, it's given me such flexibility to be able to be the mother I want, be the business person that I want. And I'm really pleased that it, 
and I'm grateful to property for that. And when I first started in property, there were hardly any women in that in, in the industry. And actually, it was it was an advantage because I was the woman. <laughs> oh yeah, that blonde woman. And so for me, that was an advantage. It's very very rare that I found it a disadvantage. I did have one agent once scream at me on the phone and tell me to go back and play with my doll's house and leave the property to the men. <laughs> Luckily, that occasion. And then often, often what used to happen is. I'd be on emails and uh, with various service providers, such as various surveyors and things. And at the end of it, they'd say, oh, and Nicole, here's our invoice for payment. <laughs> and I'd go, uh, I'm a client. <laughs> you can send that to the office. So uh, that was quite interesting that they would always target it, or often, I shouldn't say always, sorry, often target that at me thinking I was the admin. Uh, rather than the developer and then lots of people going oh you must deal with the interior as well your business partner deals with the construction which in the beginning wasn't the case I ran my own construction team as well now I'm very happy to stay off the tools and stay uh, out of the British weather and uh, in the office but um, yeah as far as the future I this is such a great industry I think people need to change how they do how they do do things and be a bit more realistic about the returns but this is short term. This is a hopefully a short term blip, and we just need a decision with the Brexit um, issues and turmoil. We just need a decision, regardless of what it is. We just need an end to this. I think the only thing that could be a huge threat to us in property is um, a Corbyn government. But I don't want to get overly political. But um, I do see that as a, a, a big issue. So we'll, we'll be watching very very closely on that. But yeah, again, I, I will go back to something more positive and just say that if you are a woman who likes to just get, get her hands dirty, uh, whatever finance and creativity that you have, then property is an excellent uh, option for you. Nicole, that's perfect timing because um I think at this stage, it'd be great to hear from you about what you would advise people and women in particular who might be either starting out in their property journey or just in the early stages. Um, you know, what, what advice have you got for, for those people, for, for newbies and particularly women? If I was a woman starting out or someone who's really passionate about property, what I would suggest actually is going and doing one of these traineeships. I think the, 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 uh, the RICS surveying courses, the on-the-job training to be a quantity surveyor or a property valuer or something like that. Because by doing this, there's no entry requirements, I believe. I believe it's just an A-level requirement. But by doing that, you get such a diverse exposure to property from a really, really practical standpoint. And being able to have these skills especially uh, as a woman starting out, will just give you so much more respect than if you're starting out without any experience and qualifications. And a lovely friend of mine, Michelle Lowe, she has a company called Red Shell Consulting, and she started out like that. And she started, uh, I think, 15 years ago when there were hardly any women to us as quantity surveyors. And she set up this beautiful consultancy and, and she's also a stunningly beautiful woman. So she takes away any stereotypes of what a female on a work on a construction site looks like because she's stunningly beautiful and elegant. And I think that would be a really, really good way of starting out in property if you are an A-levels lever or uh, perhaps wanting to retrain. 
or just asking someone if you can shadow them and uh, perhaps sit in the office and just see what these things are like. There's lots of people who are looking for interns or uh, work experience, uh, people who can come in and just shadow and see what happens in these various various groups. But working for perhaps an, a, an investment company, a property investment company, again, I think that's fascinating and I would be very interested in, in, in doing that too if I was starting out. Some really good advice there, I think, actually, because um, you get to see the reality. Um, you've spoken about it, but there's nothing, you know, getting getting professional training, with, which would be the Rick's route, or potentially shadowing, um, apprenticeships, mentoring, close shadow mentoring for someone who's doing it would be, you know, a really good way for people to start, I think. So that's that's very, very good advice. Um, Nicole, I just wanted to take you off on a slightly different um, tangent. I think we were chatting earlier about being knowledge sharers weren't we before we came on air and um i know that uh, you know you you spent was it about 16 days in you know sat down and with to write your bricking it was it bricking it the title of your book um yeah. I, I, i'm intrigued because we talk about um someone having a usual day you started the conversation a usual typical day and lots of writers tend to write 500 to 1000 words a day when they're in writing mode or every day, you know, little bite-sized chunks. But it's, um, how did you go about the process of writing a book in your particular case? I think it might resonate more with my experience is where I'm going. <laughs> well, how I did it was I, I, I mapped it out over the summer. So while I say I wrote it in, I don't know, 15, 16 days, I can't remember now, the actual mapping out I did over the summer before and... I rang my friend who's a proper writer. I'm, I'm an author, not a writer, which I think is a, there's a big difference. Uh, so I rang him and just said, right, James, what am I supposed to do? And he said, right, you need this, you need this, 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 and then you need a conclusion, which is a happy ending. And so I pretty much plotted it out using post-it notes. And there, Lucy Niklutcher, she's written a fantastic book. She owns, well, she's one of the founders of Rethink Press. She's written a fantastic book about how to write a book. And it's using post-it notes. And I found that a fantastic system because you can just get all your post-it notes in order and various different colours for the different levels, such as the main headings, subheadings, and then topics. And then you can just keep adding to topics. And then if you felt like writing about one topic that day, you just picked up that pile of post-it notes, wrote, and then uh, sort of binned those ones and then got the next one out and started writing about that. And for me, the book really flowed and I also wrote over Christmas because that was when I knew I was going to have uh, two and a half weeks at least of very little inter interruption. I was out skiing with my kids in the morning and then in the afternoon I'd come sit down and pretty much write until the evening when it was dinner and bedtime and that really worked for me. Unfortunately my second book hasn't flowed quite so well. I've done all the mapping out stage and I've tried sitting down over the last two Christmases and writing it, and I'm about two-thirds of the way through, but it's on social media, and things just keep changing. <laughs> so I am going to have to just draw a line in the sand then, and perhaps over this summer while I'm sailing around the mid and have no Wi-Fi, I'm just going to sit down and just finish that book. Wow. I mean, but on that note... Oh, sorry, Helen. Carry on, please. Don't worry, I was just um, going to say, I'm sure that lots of um, of the people listening to this episode will want to get in touch with you, find out about your book. Um, how can people get in touch, 
um, and, and find, find your book and, and the other things that you offer and your podcast as well. Yeah, so and yeah, I love my podcast as, as I'm sure you both know. I find it's such an incredible medium uh, to just record these conversations that I feel so lucky to have with so many different people. So, yeah, my podcast is just a Nicole Bremner podcast. Uh, I'm really bad at email, as you've both found out. So uh, email is not the right way of getting in touch with me. The best way is through social media. I'm normally quite responsive across all the various platforms. Actually, not so much Look, I find that really challenging. But Instagram, uh, Twitter, and LinkedIn, I'm often very active on those, especially Instagram. So, yeah, people can just drop me a message on those and I can uh, get you. Perfect. Well, Nicole, I mean, I know that you're really active on social media and I often see, in particular, I see your little videos on LinkedIn uh, popping up and always have a sneaky little look and, and see what, what you're up to. I think one of the... Um, ways in which you communicate, there's, a, there's an awful lot of talk at the moment about being authentic uh, in terms of marketing and communications. And, and sometimes people are, you know, try to be authentic, but you can't try, you just are. Um, and I think you are authentic, you come across as real. I know that you've spoken even on this conversation about, you know, you're in your, your trackies and, you know, you, I remember you did a video where you, I think uh, you hadn't had time to sort of get yourself prepared, let's say, for the camera. Um, so you're very real, but I think more more than the authenticity, it's the information you're sharing and putting out there. It's it's very high value to to the audience to see. You know, it's a bit of a fly on the wall expose of what real life as a property developer and and a businesswoman is all about. So just want to give acknowledgement in that in that vein. There's also another group, isn't that you're involved in? Isn't it about women in in property and business? Is that right? Yeah, I think that um, the they're very active, the women in property, and there's there's a lovely group of us that uh, meet quite regularly. Unfortunately, I don't meet them as regularly as I should, just due to work and family commitments. But the women in property are really, really active. So again, if there's any women who are listening who uh, want introductions to some of the beautiful women in property, I'd be happy to uh, to make introductions. There's no so there are women in property groups. I know Elsie Ibernado, uh, sorry, I can't pronounce her name, but anyway, uh, Elsie, she does a great job of uh, running a women in property networking group. So that one's great to meet other women. Uh, otherwise, there, we do ad hoc kind of meetups and lunches with um, various women in property. But it is it took my breath away uh, once I was being interviewed at this property event with Richard Bowser, the editor of Property Investor News. And I walked in a bit late and it was a Saturday afternoon and I looked out across the room of maybe 120, 130 people and there were so many women there and it actually brought tears to my eyes because having experienced those sorts of meetings years ago, there just were not that many women. And I honestly knew just about every single woman in that room and, and well, really well, we're friends and even though we seem to be in competition with each other we're actually not there's such a collaborative spirit amongst the women in this group so yeah please don't ever think that you should hold back and it's about that knowledge sharing you the more knowledge you share the, the better it is for everyone we can all collaborate and some of the property developers the female property developers are also my investors and also my really good friends so yeah do uh, get in touch if you like any introductions to any of the lovely women in property 
Oh, thank you so much, Nicole. It's great to hear that, um, that you're encountering lots more women in property and, and that women are supporting each other. Um, but, you know, it's, um, it's down to people like you who um, are there, you know, being successful and also clearly having uh, really positive values um, that have led the way. So thank you so much for that. And um, it's been great to hear all your insight and, uh, and your experiences. And I'm going to pass over to Richard now. Yeah, I just want to echo that. Thanks, Nicole. Really enjoyed the conversation today. Uh, really appreciate you joining us. And I know that we had a sort of slight uh, te technical mishap. So um, again, for diving in at the last minute, perhaps without full preparation, uh, you've come over really, really well. Very, very much enjoyed the conversation. I just want to thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it too. So thank you, Richard and Helen. You're welcome. Bye for now. Bye for now. Well, um, there was so much I kind of noted as we went through the conversation with Nicole, but the, the, there is something I want to come come back to later on. So maybe I'll, I'll just try and, try and do a little bit of a summary. Of course, the uh, springboard for uh, Nicole's foray into property development was a successful home improvement project. So she managed to add value to her own home along with her partner and was able to release equity. Uh, and use that as a springboard to further invest. And she also made the point that uh, the principles of managing a million pounds are similar to those as handling a hundred thousand or ten thousand pounds. So, and I do agree with that. Um, the game changer for her really came from um, partnering uh, first through joint ventures and then secondly through crowdfunding. So that allowed her to grow and scale quite significantly. You've perhaps heard that before. She did talk about no two days being exactly the same and uh, actually she embraces that variety uh, but equally that property development is a risky strategy um, and that in fact um, Nicole is sort of you know having gone through a growth phase is now looking at a diversification phase and, and in fact venturing into alternative investments and asset classes so that was quite interesting and insightful really to hear that I think um, it's very very tempting for all of us to be heavily weighted in property but and I think as we grow that that's probably a natural tendency but I think over time it's wise to diversify our interests quite a lot, quite a bit actually so that was that was an interesting uh, take that we, we heard sh um, Nicole share and of course, um, the the idea of uh, having uh, access to additional funds through joint ventures and indeed crowdfunding was uh, was very significant here. And uh, she talked about crowdfunding and mezzanine finance as being, you know, very helpful tools, uh, funding tools for property developers. Now, despite the fact that Nicole is, is starting to diversify away, she's still very active in property today. She's got 11 sites under development with a gross development value projected somewhere between 50 and 80 million, which does also um, indicate that valuations and uh, sales prices achieved can fluctuate quite significantly. And um, but, but equally, looking forward, uh, we, we did talk about whether you can diversify within property itself and not just be a developer. So she's looking at serviced accommodation and perhaps in being an investor, you know, on the other side of the fence, as, you know, perhaps through crowdfunding, um, uh, mezzanine financing and if ISIS being a, a tax efficient way for people to get involved in property without necessarily you know, taking on project risk directly. So I thought that was quite interesting uh, how she perhaps sees the market going. 
And uh, I think, um, you know, she was very open and honest about uh, a transaction that perhaps hasn't gone quite so well. Uh, the South Kensington project that she mentioned particularly uh, couldn't be sold. And Nicole is currently raising funds to buy back the shares from the crowd at no loss to them as a goodwill gesture. And, and I do have to say it is a bit of a goodwill gesture because uh, with an equity investment, such as through a crowd uh, investment platform with equity finance, then you can lose all your capital. So um, I think it's quite noble and honourable uh, issues to make a commitment to ensure that nobody was to lose any money. That's what she said, and I'm sure that's what she will do. Um, there was a number of highs and lows that came out of it, but cash flow and valuations being key. And, you know, as a developer myself, I, I understand this all too well that, uh, so for example, I've got three refinancings going through and I started them in December and they're still, you know, mid-April not completed. So uh, that's dragged on a bit and has had an implication on my cash flow management. Uh, some of those valuations have been lower than expected as well. So that is the reality that we have to deal with. I think um, her advice was to, you know, make sure that you can, your worst case can be your case and not to have rose tinted spectacles or have this glass half full approach uh, and indeed to hold back until you find the right project and make sure you don't bite off more than you can chew with too many projects on the go at the same time. And she made reference to how long it could take to get planning and financing in certain situations. And again, I've got first hand experience of that too. And indeed, low you know, expect, expectations, lower your expectations, low double digit return expectations are more realistic. And if you don't expect more than that, you can't be disappointed. Obviously, aim for more than that. But, uh, you know, people targeting 40, 50 percent returns, um, you know, it, it, it may not necessarily be sustainable and viable, certainly in some markets at some points in the cycle. Uh, and uh, returning to her principles and values, I'm going to mention this again, but she, she has committed that none of her investors will lose money, uh, which is a, you know, very noble, as I mentioned, and um, um, it's not necessarily what uh, you should expect when you make an equity investment of any nature. So that's, uh, that's good. To treat people as uh, they wish to be treated, um, as you wish to be treated yourself, I think is an important consideration. And we had, you know, we had a, a sidebar conversation about that too. And indeed, managing your reputation is important. So, some good points there. Um, I think in, in conclusion, or before the conclusion, she talked about um, in, if you want to get involved in property, perhaps doing a training ship of some description, such as a formal RICS program, to get some practical insight and experience would be a good idea. Or indeed, to, to shadow a developer or work at, uh, in a property investment company to observe how things go on in reality, perhaps before venturing out yourself or in parallel to uh, venturing out yourself. I thought they were very, very good points too. Of course, she's written the book, which is called Bricking It, and you can see that on uh, on Amazon. There's all links to her contacts, which is the, uh, well, obviously there's the Nicole Bremner podcast, and then there's her uh, social media contacts, particularly Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, all in the show notes, along with a link to the book as well. So that was that. But um, one thing actually also came to light, and I, I just wanted to bring this up now. After recording the interview, I became aware of a little bit of disquiet or concern around some of Nicole's development progress and investor communications. Um, and then had a separate conversation with her around this to establish her views on this and, and get a bit of a, a response, I guess. And, and this is all visible in social media if you just want to look it up. But essentially, Nicole told me that there was a development that did experience some delays. And there was also a period of time where the investor communications were not perhaps as regular as they could have been. 
Um, and this was partly down to how the platform used works for investors as well. She talked about in, this in the interview. So, for example, with the Cogress model, um, Cogress control all the investor updates and they undertake regular checks. And so they channel out the communication flow um, in, in an automated way. And that burden, if you like, is removed from the developer. Uh, however, with the simple equity platform, it, all the communication and updates is left to the developer to manage themselves. And, and this can lead to some challenges uh, when the investor updates and communications are, let's say, not part of the core business or you know, maybe even not a core strength for the developer. So there's a bit of a clue there, I think, that perhaps some things uh, didn't quite go as well as they might have done in that respect. Uh, Nicole did tell me quite openly that she's got 169 individual investors uh, that have invested with uh, her developments through crowd platforms uh, that she's used and in her own words two to three of those are unhappy five to six of them are so-so but the significant majority of what's left which is around about 160 I guess um, are at least contented with what's been happening with regard to the investment updates and the development progress but perhaps it's worth highlighting once again that property development is a risky area and anyone investing in it, particularly in an equity share, should either be a high net worth uh, in individual or a sophisticated investor and not what they call a retail investor. And this means they can appreciate the risks involved and maybe tolerate some ups and downs of, some, uh, of such an investment at the same time. I think that came over quite loud and clear a few times that it's a risky area. But from what I understand um, now, I'm talking to Nicole, um, her development updates and communications are, are now operating. And so any individual investors should be able to receive these updates through the platforms through which they invested. So if you're an investor, I suggest you go and, and use the discussion boards on those platforms. Um, and as Nicole has clearly stated through, throughout the interview, and she did to me afterwards, uh, she will not allow any investor to lose money. And in the, in the case of an equity investment, this is not by any means a contractual commitment at all. So that's a very big commitment to make in all honesty and, uh, and fair play to her for, for saying that. Um, I guess if you're not an investor and you want to know more about her um, projects and developments and, and that sort of thing, the, the, the links are in the show notes as to how you can connect with her directly to receive that kind of update. Just to clarify, my position here is very much a neutral one. I've got no judgment, uh, which I'm applying in either direction. And so people should uh, always form their own judgments um, based on their own independent research and due diligence from a variety of sources. Okay then, so that's that out of the way, and hopefully uh, you get a lot out, a lot of value out of the discussion this week with Nicole, and some of the reality, I guess, uh, of what it's like being a property uh, developer. But if you want to talk about anything from today's show, or just talk about property investing more generally, you know you can always email me, uh, or indeed Helen, uh, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net, and we'd be more than happy to hear from you. The show notes can be found at the website, thepropertyvoice.net, as usual. But I guess all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.